everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this very important episode we're doing today. It's an episode on sincerity and truth. What does God see in your heart? Because however our heart is positioned for him will dictate to how we are responding to society today. And this is a topic that I have been sitting in with the Lord for several months now, as I am going through a self-examination of my own heart. I want to make sure that the condition of my own heart is prepared to respond to a world where it appears the love of many is growing cold. And why is that? Well, there's a lot of factors, but one that I just want to highlight that's Uh, easy for us to see is political correctness, for example. There has been a preoccupation with political correctness for many years now that today I think is quickly turning into an obsession, a dangerous obsession. You see, political correctness is a term that was coined years back, used to describe language we use or policies we make or measures taken that are intended to avoid offense or intended to uh, make sure that members of particular groups in society are not disadvantaged. It's fine. But it appears, like I said, to be morphing into a life of its own that people didn't see coming. Because the more it grows, the more intolerant people seem to become to be becoming with each other, the more unloving and impatient people are coming with, becoming with each other. And many of us are starting to ask ourselves, you know, what is our response? How as Christians do we go out and speak the truth in love to a world that is growing increasingly hostile to the truth? Does the world even care anymore about being sincere and being truthful? It's pretty obvious that a disconnect has taken place in our culture from these fundamental biblical principles. And that's what they are, sincerity and truth. They are foundational biblical principles for us to live by. Good is now called evil, though, and evil and sin are now called good. And so no matter how sincere someone is, or if they speak up truthfully on a matter, for example, If what they say doesn't fall in line with being politically correct or politically accepted or whatever, they're canceled or they're mocked or in some cases socially crucified. We've seen it, right? And seen as a result now, society is infested with what I call double-mindedness and divided hearts because people are disassociating themselves with what is morally good to embrace their own vices and versions of truth and expecting everybody else to accept that. And sadly, and I, I hesitate saying this, but it's true. It has affected many Christians within Christianity. There even appears to be a lot of this vacillating going on this double mindedness when it comes to truth, when it comes to Christ. And it is sending the world a mixed message about who Christ is. Some of us within the faith are compartmentalizing our lives into what we deem as right and good, 
not necessarily what the Bible says is right and good. You do you, right? And anybody that speaks the truth from the Bible to them, there is major pushback. And so we've got a problem. And so these last few months, I've been pondering and studying this importance of sincerity and truth and what it means for a believer as the Bible describes it, how we are to living, the posturing of our heart, how we are to living, to be living with these two key principles in order to rightly respond to the condition of society today. And boy, oh boy, what a reminder and a lesson it has been for me. You know, we're all still in process. Nobody out there has arrived. Nobody. And we're all still learning. And so I just want to share with you what God has been showing me. And maybe perhaps it will give you something to ponder as well. You know, the Bible clearly and plainly states that both sincerity and truth are necessary principles in order to serve him and live rightly before him. Sincerity and truth. Now, when we hear those words, at least me, uh, we may automatically assume we know what scripture is implying, right? Because we start thinking of modern definitions of what sincerity means and what truth means. So if you were to look up sincerity on the internet today, you might come across something that says something about um, being free from deceit or hypocrisy or the quality of being honest or true or real or genuine. And that's true as society defines it. Someone is sincere if they are genuine and honest or maybe, maybe somebody helps somebody out and they don't want anything in return and it's very sincere, it's very genuine. And then if you look up truth, You might come across a definition that is um, something about being in accordance with fact or reality, being accurate, and that is correct too, as society defines it. We know that mathematical calculations if done correctly are true. They give a true answer. Or we can look up to a blue sky and we can say, hey, the sky is blue, and it's true, the sky is blue, because that's the color. Or we can even attest to certain events in our own life as being something that took place that was true. But when it goes beyond logical, provable thinking, which is happening all around us, we now all of a sudden have truth being determined by other people. And so whose facts are we following? And where is the evidence to back up these facts? to justify political correctness. Well, I'll tell you who we're following. We're following fallible people. We're following people. We're not following God. We're following people, people who are presenting truth from no other source except their own belief system and worldview. That's who we're following. Truth that is based on nothing but what they perceive as true. And as Christians, we have to be so careful of this. Because even much in science cannot be proven. It's hypothesis or theory, not fact. Yes, I know there's, there's factual things in science. I don't want a science teacher yelling at me. But there's a lot, and you all know this, that is hypothesis or theory. So when we think of sincerity and truth, those two definitions are probably where our head goes. But neither of these definitions in on the internet or in a dictionary 
properly explain what the Bible means by having a heart of sincerity and truth, a heart that a Christian is supposed to have, a heart that is acceptable to God. And that's where I began to ponder. Because as society unravels and sincerity and truth are on the chopping block, what is a Christian's response? It could not be any more clear right now, my friends, for followers of Christ, that the fields of the earth are white for harvest. I've been saying this for months. The body of Christ has a tremendous opportunity right now for the gospel, to take the gospel out. But we have to make sure that the gospel we are taking out into the communities around us is God's gospel, the true gospel. If we are called to be his witnesses, people who give an account, people who give evidence of the truth of Jesus Christ, then we need to make sure that we are delivering this evidence, this good news to the world with sincerity and truth, with a heart and a truth that is in alignment with him. So let's try to understand this. I'm going to look at several passages first on sincerity and then uh, explain what sincerity is. And then we're going to go into truth. Okay. Excuse me. I want to begin in the Old Testament, Joshua 24, verse 14. It says, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth. And a couple sentences later, it's where you get choose today whom you will serve, or as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. (laughs) We might be more familiar with that, but this is incredibly important. We are to serve him in sincerity and in truth. Joshua is making an appeal to the nation of Israel to choose between God and the many false substitutes around them. And he is being firm in this appeal, which is the mark of a true leader. He is willing to move ahead and commit himself to the truth and the cause of his God, regardless of people's bias. And he's expecting them to make a decision. And so to serve God in sincerity in this passage means to serve him and to have a blameless heart, an unblemished heart, to walk upright before him without spot. In other words, it is without mixing with anything. It's a word that should describe your entire relationship to God. Choose today whom you will serve, right? This word is all about being sound in your faith and that you are morally innocent in your relationship and faith to him. And as I was reading this and looking into the word deeply and, and I'm, I'm reading the word spotless and without blemish, it rang the bell for me for about Christ and his church, right? Paul in Ephesians 5.27, when he says that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That's what being sincere is, being a holy church 
a holy people of God without spot, without wrinkle. That's why the bride has to make herself ready. We are to be doing the work right now to make sure we are coming out from among them to be separate, to not touch the things that are unclean, to not touch the things that are unholy, right? To serve him with sincerity. That's what this means. In Ephesians, the last sentence of Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 24, it says this, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. To love Jesus Christ in all sincerity in this verse means to love him without incorruptibility. Nothing can corrupt your faith. This goes along with being without spot, without blemish, right? Being upright before him. That means the world out there can't corrupt you. Then we have 2 Corinthians 2.17, where Paul is addressing the people in Corinth and he says, for we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as, uh, as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. They were being accused of peddling the word of God and peddling means when we make merchandise of the gospel, when we're trying to sell the word of God for selfish, selfish gain, right? There will always be some people who use religion for personal gain. There just will. It was back then. It still is today. The gospel being merchandise to sell for profit. I'm not saying everybody does it, but it's just the motivation of the heart. And so he came in defense of that. And he says, no, he says, we taught the word of God in sincerity as from God. And what it means, sincerity in this passage, is purity. He taught from a pure place, a pure heart. It's a quality that is possessed by God, which will characterize or should characterize the conduct of believers. Everything we do, if we are teaching, if we are anything for the Lord, being a Christian, pure of heart should be one of the character traits of who we are. How about 1 Corinthians 5.8? Paul is again talking to the people in Corinth and he says, let us keep the feast, Passover, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The feast here is a figure of speech for Christ because Christ was the Passover lamb. And so as Israel all around them was, Jewish people all around them were removing leaven, which was representative of sin, in their houses to prepare for Passover, the Corinthians, Paul was encouraging them not to defile their relationship with Christ with sin, with leaven. They are to keep their relationship with Christ with sincerity and truth. And it's the same meaning as the previous verse. It's purity. And it goes along without spot, without blemish, upright, right? Perfect, without spot, blameless, right? That's what that means. Now, let me give you one more. And this is 2 Corinthians 1.12. Paul, again, defending himself. We conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity 
and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Paul's critics accused him of living for his own self-interest, and so he addressed the accusation. And again, in this passage, that word sincerity means pure. He had a pure heart towards the Corinthians. And so to serve God with sincerity means to offer him a heart of purity, a heart that is unalloyed, it says, which means it's not mixed. It's an unmixed substance. If Christ sits on the throne of our hearts, nothing else should be mixing with that. What you listen to, what we're watching, what we're doing, right? It's being pure, both morally and ethically. Think about the Sermon on the Mount for a minute. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart in this verse means clean, without blemish, spotless, free from corrupt desires. The pure in heart shall see God. That spotless bride without blemish. So how do we start to get pure? Well, first, we must start with repentance, which in the Greek is think differently. And in the Hebrew, it means turn around, go a different, you've been going this way and it's wrong. So go a different direction, right? What sin are you sitting in? Even after your conversion into Christianity, that you need to repent of and move away from. Jesus cleanses us with his blood and the washing of the water of his word when we repent of our sins, just like that. We don't just repent once at conversion for salvation. Our lives are a continual life of self-examination. If I never repented from almost 30 years ago, I mean, think of all the stuff. I think of all the stuff that I've repented of in the last 30 years since I got saved. I repent all the time because it's a continual washing. It's like being in a spiritual shower. We repent when our hearts go astray or when we find ourselves weak and we're mixing with things we shouldn't be mixing with. We want pure, sincere hearts before God. And some of us never think about this. And it might be high time for some of us to take our own spiritual shower. Do a self-examination. Examine your heart. Because it says in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? To confess is to agree with God, to admit that how we are living is not in alignment to his word. You might be going this way, And his word is telling you to go this way. And so you got to figure out how to get that in alignment. But forgiveness and cleansing are guaranteed. But we need to confess to be washed, made pure, spotless, without blemish. And then we serve him in sincerity with a pure heart and unmixed heart. So let me pause and ask you a question. 
as you listen to what sincerity means and then you think about the culture around you and political correctness, where are you lining up? Are you mixing to fit in? Are you mixing so as not to offend? Are you mixing so that the world loves and accepts you? Now, let me give you a biblical example of how this looks. In Ezra chapter 9, when the Israelites started to return from Babylon, where they were exiled after dishonoring God, the men began to intermarry with pagan women. But God's law was clear. The holy seed of God, his people Israel, were not permitted to intermarry with pagans. Being mixed with paganism was what prompted God to exile them from the land to begin with because they started mixing. They were mixing the pure and undefiled worship of God with pagan beliefs. Then they would go and cry out to God when they needed him, but, and they would go to the temple and offer sacrifices. But at the same time, they were adopting all of these wicked worship practices that had nothing to do with God. And so they were mixing and they thought he couldn't see. And he was ever so patient, which is why he sent prophet after prophet after prophet, urging them to repent and return. But they were stubborn. They did not think that what they were doing was so bad. And now, after punishment, after exile, they're back at it. And that whole chapter 9 of Ezra is Ezra's astonishment at it. And before you think, well, that was the law of Moses, Carol, that doesn't apply to us today. May I mention that no less is expected for followers of Jesus Christ? Being Christian means we too are his holy seed. Therefore, Paul makes it very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that believers are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This isn't just talking about marriage. It's true in life. We are to be in the world, yes, but we are no longer of the world. We may find ourselves in the culture wars, but we are not of the culture wars. We don't yoke ourselves to the ideologies born from the deceitful hearts of unregenerate man. We yoke ourselves to the foundational principles of Christ. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. This is not our home. Like the Israelites, we are to be a holy, set-apart people. We are to be pure, morally, ethically. We are to make sure that we are affecting the world, but that the world is not infecting us. And so we must guard our hearts so as not to develop a dangerous affection for the things of the world. Paul says, what has the communion of light to do with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? He's talking about how believers, when you start mixing your life with unbelievers, this is what happens. What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? If we are finding ourselves aligning more with the philosophies and belief systems of the outside world, we've got a problem and we need to get realigned. 
Because you see, Christ's command is pretty simple. Follow him. Follow me. Love him first and foremost above everyone and everything else. Fear him, which means revere, respect, honor, and serve him in sincerity and truth. Loving God, loving the Lord Jesus Christ includes obeying his word and being filled with his spirit and living led by his spirit because he is, after all, the word and the spirit comes from the father through the son. So he's all of it. And if that is in alignment, fear of the Lord, sincerity and truth, then we can love people properly. But if our love for the Lord and loving without a sincere, and if we are, if our love for the Lord and we are not loving from a sincere, a pure heart, then guess what? We cannot love people correctly. We cannot love people with God's love. If we are only embracing partial truths of who God is or what his word says, guess what? We're not loving people with the God kind of love that he wants us to love them with. So when you say love God and love others, great. Let's make sure the first part is done right. Because to yoke with something, friends, is to associate differently than what God is requiring of his people. When we are yoked with society, when we are yoked with philosophies and doctrines of the world, when we are yoked with this stuff, it means coupling together with something whether it's a person or a type of thinking. Some of us are yoking ourselves to a significant other outside of the covenant of marriage in the body of Christ. Some of us are yoking ourselves to new age practices. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing any of you who do this, but yoga, for example, has emerged as a very popular means of health and strength. Okay, I understand. But the word yoga itself means to yoke or union. And so we must test everything. What are we being yoked to? Because God wants us to serve him with a sincere heart, a heart that is not mixed, yoked, compromised, or corrupted, but pure. The pure in heart shall see God. And you know, it's Pride Month right now, right? A month, a whole month of June. And actually, this year, it started kind of at the end of May. But either way, it's a whole month devoted to pride. It's in our face everywhere. The rainbow that God created as a symbol of his, a sign of his covenant to not destroy the earth again with a flood has been hijacked and perverted. And why did he destroy the earth to begin with? Because of pride, because of sin. All flesh was corrupted on the earth except the few he spared. And we're celebrating being prideful. And you know what pride is in the Bible? Arrogance. 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 
Self-conceit. Are you celebrating Pride Month? Then you're mixing. You may not want to hear that, but for a Christian to participate in Pride Month, in Arrogance Month, in Self-Conceited Month, is mixing. It's a defiled heart. It's a heart mixing with what God considers sin. It's impure. Pride is sin. To celebrate Pride Month is to celebrate the very thing that got Satan thrown out of heaven. You know that? Is to celebrate the very thing that changed angels into devils and demons. Did you know that? It's to celebrate the very thing that put the world in the wretched condition it's in to begin with. Genesis 3, 6. We're no different than society when we do this. Operating in double-mindedness. Operating with a divided heart. If we're celebrating pride, the sin of pride, our hearts are divided. Our will is not his will. But the last few decades have shown this is where we are as a church. Because decades ago, we took it upon ourselves within the church to change the church, to reframe what church was to look like, and then at the same time, recast Jesus in an unoffendable light as a God of love that doesn't mind our sin. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. You know what to be double-minded means? It means to be unstable in all of your ways. Think about that. To be double-minded means you are always vacillating. It's described as if you have two souls living one life for yourself and the other for God when it's convenient. But my friends, God doesn't operate that way. And he doesn't expect his family to either. It says in 2 Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And that word loyal is actually perfect, which in the Hebrew means complete. A heart that is sincere. Do not be deceived, Paul says. What I'm about to read is one of his most difficult passages for Christians to swallow. It's out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul is speaking to Christians who used to operate in these things. 
as were some of you. Some of you in Corinth were drunkards. Some of you in Corinth were covetous. Some of you in Corinth were fornicators and would have never inherited the kingdom of God. But you were washed of these sins. You were sanctified. You're changing. And I justified you now as if you never did these things. So no, we are not to live with our sin. We are not to confess Christ as king of our heart and never change. A fornicator is where we get the word pornography, pornos. Such were some of you, but I washed you of it. You're sanctified now. You're no longer that, he says. Pornography is a crisis within the church. When are we going to openly talk about this? Do we think it's okay to celebrate fornication? To celebrate something that is literally destroying the souls of people? That is literally destroying marriages? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your body, my friend, is a member of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not, he says. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Listen, friends, we cannot be joined to sin or we're playing the harlot. You cannot stay the same once you become a follower of Jesus Christ. You cannot stay the same, whether it's being a drunkard, as they say, or whatever, the alcoholism, whether you're a covetous person, whatever it is, as were some of you. So no, 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 no. Whoever is telling you that it's okay to be A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, you go right to this verse and say, no, we are called to change so that we can inherit the kingdom of God. We are to serve him in sincerity, in purity, without spot, without blemish, whatever it is. I've had my own list of sins I've had to deal with and wrestle with and put to death in my life. Now, what about truth? The world tells us it means something that's accurate, something factual. But truth is something that cannot be owned by men, my friends, because it belongs to God. Truth of an idea, truth of reality, truth of sincerity, truth in the moral sphere, truth in the ethical sphere, sphere. Truth is divine knowledge revealed to man, straightforward and unchanging. What was said in scripture thousands of years ago is equally as relevant and important today because God does not change and God is truth. Just as God is love, a lot of us like to say, his love is unchanging. Well, God is also truth and his truth is unchanging. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he does not change. Therefore, truth cannot be bound. It cannot be chained. 
Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Paul suffered for the gospel. Good news. He, they didn't like it because it's truth. Since mankind cannot pull God from his throne, they're going to come as close as possible by attacking his truth, by twisting it, by vilifying it, casting enough doubt to the point that even Christians today now doubt the infallibility of God's word. Not only that, many in the body of Christ are fearful of speaking the truth out of God's word for fear of the world hating them. Is truth not the great treasure that God delivered to his saints with serious instruction to keep it against all that might try to undermine it? Friends, please take this seriously. Fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth. We covered what sincerity means, so what is truth? mean in this passage? It means certainty, trustworthiness, faithful, right, and established. Why do we need to be established in his truth? So that we are not children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, with every wind of counterfeit movements, With every version of truth mankind tries to come up with, we can say with all certainty and believe that what God says is true. His word is truth. And we are being assaulted and bombarded on every side with lies disguised as truth. And many people are being taken captive by it. Lies about creation, lies about marriage, lies about being created male and female, lies about pride and sin and immorality. You and me, we need his truth. When you think about putting on the armor of God, that's in Ephesians chapter six, truth is a key piece, you know. It's called a belt. In some Bibles, it might be called a girdle. The armor consists of the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, shoes that are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, and the helmet of salvation, right? And this armor that's being described, it's pieces that cover both the upper and lower parts of the body. But truth is the belt that connects them all together, the upper and lower parts of the armor. It fastens it all together. And so the more closely the belt is drawn to the body, the more the loins are strengthened. That's why when God wanted to weaken a people, he used the expression, I will loosen the loins of kings, right? In other words, he'll weaken them. So as we tighten truth around us, the more our loins are strengthened, the more we are strengthened because truth is our strength. 
That's why I will not back down from telling his truth, even if it costs me everything. There's a lot of you out there that read Psalm 91, right? You want protection. Well, in Psalm 91, it says his truth shall be your shield and buckler, right? And truth in this passage means stability, certainty. It's our support. It's firm. It's faithful. It's trustworthy. That's what his truth is. His scriptures, the scriptures, are his truth. That's why, oh, I grieve so deep in my spirit when I see Christians backing away from his truth or afraid to tell the truth. His word is his truth because he is the word. The Holy Spirit is his truth because he is called the spirit of truth. To walk in truth is to conduct oneself according to God's holiness, according to his holy standards, to be aligned with the government of heaven. His truth is everything. And it says his truth shall be your shield. Well, shield in this passage is really interesting. It's actually a noun that refers to like a hook. It refers to this sharp instrument that they used to gouge and lead away prisoners. And it was prickly. Think of, of what it feels like if you stick your hand in a rose bush, right? And the thorns get you and you quickly pull away. Well, that's, guess what? That, that's what truth does to people. But yet it's our shield. His truth is certain. It's faithful. It's trustworthy. And it's a shield that takes prisoners. It's a shield that is prickly. Truth is prickly to people, but it's a powerful shield to us because it protects us. In a buckler, it refers to a large, probably rectangular shield used in battle. And so we stand behind the shield It is our protection. Truth is so powerful and mighty. And like I said, many of you like praying Psalm 91 for protection. Well, part of that is embracing his truth as your shield. And if you don't like his truth and you're praying this Psalm, guess what? You're without a shield. His shield of his truth in righteousness is that very thing that stands against every lie, every curse, and every deception of the enemy. That's why I cannot in good conscience embrace anything about a month that is named after the sin of pride. Listen, friends. Paul says in Romans, Knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Romans 13. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. You see, friends, the armor of light 
is a picture of putting on Christ, for he is light and life, and he is the life of men. And his light goes out into the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. If you are dressed in heavenly armor, the armor of light, with the belt of truth, the darkness cannot comprehend you. It cannot seize that light away from you. But you must hold fast to his truth. You cannot declare he is the way, the truth, and the life in Christian settings and conveniently leave parts out of his truth that you don't like. You cannot leave parts out of his truth because they are now out of your witness. And if you're trying to witness the gospel without the full counsel of God, you will be given someone a different gospel, a different Jesus. And that would be a very serious offense. And you see, this is what's missing in society right now. Real truth. God's truth. Truth that sets people free. We have mental illness destroying a generation because they are not hearing the truth. Where's the church? Where's the scream from God's people? He heard the cries of his people in Egypt. Where are the cries of God's people? 4% of adult Americans hold to a biblical worldview. I have said statistics over and over in many podcasts. 96% are embracing a mixture. And that includes people who call themselves a Christian. Marxism, nihilism, dualism, new age, secular humanism, moralistic therapeutic deism, that's feel-good Christianity, biblical theism. They're using enough scripture to be called a Christian, but embracing enough of everything else to maintain their lifestyle or likability or business, or whatever. As Paul says to Timothy 4, as Paul says to Timothy in Timothy chapter 4, 1 to 4, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. People today don't need to hear your truth, or my truth, or that author's truth, or that public speaker's truth. They need to hear God's truth from his word. People will remain in bondage and deception until then because truth is the only thing that will set them free. And pray. Pray that God has counted us worthy of this calling, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, a calling that is to fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in us and us in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 to 12. 
written to Christians who would die for this truth. Satan will stop at nothing to deceive the saints of God, especially as the time draws near for Christ's return. He will come as a serpent to deceive with his forked tongue, speaking lies and hypocrisy, double-mindedness, dividing the heart. (laughs) He will use false teachers to cheat us with error disguised as truth. Tertullian described it like this. Those false teachers, they teach by persuading and do not by teaching persuade. In other words, These false teachers will court God's children through emotions, the emotions of the hearers, without convicting their judgment. An adulterer will never say straight up, hey, let's have an affair, because it's unlawful. So they'll try another angle. Romantic overtones, appealing to the flesh, right? That's what false teachers do too. They appeal to our flesh. It sounds good, feels good, it seems good, it makes me happy, it makes me feel safe, people like me. And then error, like a thief, sneaks its way into our temple, into our house. Truth doesn't act like a thief, friends, but rather like an owner. Like the owner of a house, truth enters the front door of understanding and from there moves straight into the conscience, doesn't it? I've heard it said, whether it's true or not, Evangelists appeal to the emotions while prophets appeal to the conscience. It's true, I think. When the word of truth pierces the soul, it cuts. Because it's discerning between the soul and spirit. It's discerning the thoughts and intents of our hearts, isn't it? It's cutting away the fake. It's the sword of the spirit and the armor of God. It cuts us to the core, to our conscience, which is why we squirm when we hear it, right? And so we must, no matter how hard it is, desire that kind of cutting, the truth of God's word. Because when we hear it, we know the potter is still at work on the clay. He is chiseling and cutting away things that shouldn't be there. But if we avoid difficult biblical truth altogether, the refiner can't refine. If we do not desire to know the truth, then we have already rejected it. Because after Satan has wormed his way in, then he pounces like a lion, doesn't he? Persuading the persecutors, striving to separate saints from the truth of God through fear of persecution. You don't want to go to jail, do you? You don't want to lose your 501c3, do you? Or fear of alienation. You know, you might lose friends if you say that. You might lose members if you teach that. Or fear of danger and death. You don't want to move to that country Do you know what they do to Christians in that country? You don't want to serve in that part of town, do you? Fear. Fear. 
And the only way to defend ourselves against Satan and his tactics is to be girded with the belt of truth, to be girded with certainty, trustworthiness, faithfulness established in Christ, and sincere, pure devotion to him. So that when the voice of the stranger is speaking, we don't entertain it. We only follow the voice of our shepherd, the voice of truth. Because it says in Hebrews 10.38, if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Philippians 1.10 says, may your love abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Our love, brothers and sisters, is to abound in the knowledge of God and discernment. The knowledge of God and discernment. Our love is to abound in that. Remember, our love for him and everything that consists of him must come first before we can properly love others. The world looks to the church, whether you realize it or not, to understand what's true. What's worth fighting for? What's worth dying for? The world looks to the church to discern good and evil, so we can't be silent or we'll lose our witness. And so hearing all of this, let's discern who we're getting our truth from. I'm almost done. One, watch for those who want God's truth for carnal advantage. Sometimes carrying God's truth pays well. It can be very profitable, can't it? But think of the whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead men's bones and all sorts of impurity, right? In other words, they'll take your money, but they're not going to give you the very thing that will set you free. Truth finds few people today who love her freely. And so we must exercise great discernment to be able to identify the genuine from the counterfeit. Number two, watch for those who talk about truth, but do not live it. Many kiss Christ, but few love him. Truly love him. True love means the holiest, sincerest marriage. When our souls give itself to the Lord, we are then ruled by God's Spirit and ordered by His Word of Truth. For some, the reality of what God is saying is too strong a truth to carry in a world that will condemn them for it, even family and friends. Herod feared the truth spoken by John the Baptist, and it cost John his life. Are you willing to live out His truth? And then third, watch for those who have no zeal against the enemies of truth. This is a big one. Jesus said that he will vomit the lukewarm church out of his mouth. Vomit. They were neither hot nor cold. A go-along to get-along people. Zeal in a Christ follower acts like a fire. 
When truth is under assault, it should rise up in us like a flame that was just stoked. Jeremiah was so passionate about the Lord, but his mission was hard. His friends talked about him behind his back. They ridiculed him. And then he finally says in Jeremiah chapter 20, I'm not going to make mention of him anymore. I'm not going to speak anymore in his name. He'd had it because he was getting persecuted so much. But then he said, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary of holding it back and I could not. For I heard many mocking. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling. Isn't that true? To people who are out there around the world speaking bold truth and everyone's watching for their stumbling, mocking them. But the Lord is with me as a mighty awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. Jeremiah 20. That's what zeal for the truth does, my friends. If it is pent up into the heart of a private Christian and cannot flame forth to punish evil, guess what? It burns inwardly. For many, it comes out through grief and travail and prayer. It consumes the spirit of a Christian for not rescuing truth from stampeding profanity and error. That's what it feels like. I am not Jeremiah, but I sure can relate to these words. That's how I feel most times. This tremendous grief over the trampling of God's word and astonishment over complacency in the body of Christ. And it lays on my heart like a burning flame. And in that zeal, I am sure I have rubbed people the wrong way. I might be rubbing you the wrong way right now. I'm not trying to, but it burns within me. And I didn't put it there myself. He did. He burns within me because I asked him to. We need zeal in the church against the enemies of truth today. We need zeal in the body of Christ. Zeal to say enough, enough. When is the church going to say enough? No more abortions. When are we going to say that out loud? Thou shalt not murder. It's not thou shalt not kill. That's an incorrect translation. You know, there are two Hebrew words for homicide, just as there are in the English language, kill and murder. Kill is harag in Hebrew. Murder is ratzak in Hebrew. In Exodus for the Ten Commandments, it uses the word ratzak, murder. Murder is illegal killing. There is legal killing. You can kill an animal to eat it and a person in self-defense, such as in war. But murder in the Bible is illegal killing. What is it going to take for the church to say, enough? Is euthanasia going to stop as people are trying to wipe out the elderly? We can't in the body of Christ even come to mutual understanding and agreements on this very important issue. Because we don't know the Lord and we don't know his word. And so we take someone else's word for it. 
And that becomes our defense. And I'm telling you, friends, a reckoning is coming for all of this innocent blood. It's coming if it's not already starting to be here. Because you know what? Neutrality is not biblical. It keeps a distance. Neutrality refuses to suffer for truth even when we see truth and error mingling together. Neutrality will keep you neutral, neither hot nor cold. And you will be vomited out if that is your state. Vacillating. A double-minded person, unstable in all their ways. So we must have sincerity and truth, friends. We must have it. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. May that be said of us, my friends. May we be filled with the boldness of the Holy Spirit to bring people back from error into truth. I've taken a step back from some things lately, asking God to refine me, to purge me, to prune me, to search my heart, to know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me. I want him to refine me so that I serve him in holy fear and sincerity and truth. I'm not trying to offend any of you out there. I'm sincerely, genuinely trying not to offend anybody out there. I'm trying in my own human weakness to give you the truth in love. You know what our nation is and has been struggling with? Clear as a bell. It's a spirit of harlotry. Spirit of harlotry. As the prophet Hosea put it in chapter 4, as I skip around, there is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore, the land will mourn because they ceased obeying the Lord. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers deeply love dishonor. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. And because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. This was prophesied to the children of Israel when they became so self-consumed, lovers of self rather than lovers of God, and it was their ruin. And we're headed there. And they refuse to repent and return. And that's where we are as a nation, even as Christians. Full of self, not all. There's always a remnant. But the trends we're on, the path we're on is very concerning. Refusing to repent and return. And as it says in Hosea 10, their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. Our hearts are divided. And it's one grand and grievous fault within the church of Christ at the present day. For some, we want salvation and our sin. And you know what? 
This grieves the heart of God because it says in Ezekiel 6, he was crushed by their adulterous heart. Crushed by their adulterous heart. God's heart can be crushed by a mixed heart, by an insincere heart, a heart that is impure, a heart that is out there mixing him with everything else out there. And Christian, we don't have any excuse we can give God for this when the Bible is so readily available to us and we can search out the scriptures to see what he says on the matter. We are without excuse. But it's not too late. That's the thing. He's so gracious. He's so patient. He's so long-suffering, even in our rebellion. Even like the church of lukewarm Laodicea in Revelation. He says, therefore, be zealous and repent. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Revelation 3.19. It's his love that brings us back into alignment if we're willing. He's merciful. But we must acknowledge our iniquity. He'll forgive us. But we must repent and be cleansed. Listen, friends, a time is coming when we go on trial for our lives before the judgment seat of Christ. The great question will be, whether or not we've been sincere. Were we pure of heart? Undefiled? Without spot and blemish? Will he be able to say of of us, look at my spotless bride who loved my truth, who followed my truth? Will we be able to say that? You see, he will not condemn a sincere soul that with thousand sins be brought against it. He won't. He just won't. So if that's you, if your heart is condemning you, even though you serve the Lord in sincerity and truth, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you with something. This is really profound, actually. It's in the Old Testament, which is why we should read the Old Testament. But it's King Asa of Judah. He was sincere, but he had failures. Even though he didn't remove the high places of false worship in Israel, nevertheless, it says, Asa's heart was perfect, parentheses, pure, sincere, blameless, with the Lord all his days. 1 Kings 15, 14. Asa's failures give a greater attractiveness to his sincerity, which, in spite of his sins, won a good testimony from God's own mouth. He desired God's will. He desired God's truth. That's the difference. Is the, is the positioning of your heart. Because there was another king, Amaziah of Judah. He came later. And it says, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. But not with a perfect heart. Not with a pure heart. Not with a sincere heart. Second Chronicles 25.2 in other words, his actions were good on the outside, but his attitude was faulty, and this turned his right into a wrong. He was insincere. That's the point. Someone can look like, act like, 
walk like and talk like a Christian, but their hearts can be far from him, mixed with all kinds of evil and ugly and defiling things. That's why you have to test every author you read, every person you listen to, everything. Because God does not look at those things. He looks upon the heart. If this is you, if your heart has been divided, if you have been mixing Christ with what is unholy, if you have neglected the whole counsel of God or even ignored his word to justify a lifestyle or a lifestyle of someone you love, now is the time to get before him, to seek his face and to repent and turn. Now is the time to make those changes because sincerity of heart puts us in tune with God's heart. God pities our weakness and knows our heart. If it is sincere towards him, he looks upon us with great compassion, quickly washing those sins away by his blood of mercy the moment we acknowledge them. And if our heart being sincere towards him condemns us, he is greater than our heart. 1 John 3.21 Friends, Satan wants to sift God's people like wheat, so pray to be strengthened. So that once we are, we can help strengthen other brothers and sisters in the faith. Every person goes where their love carries them. If the world has your love, you will spend your life for it. But if truth has your love, you will put your life in the middle of it rather than let it be mangled. And so we must ask ourselves, what is the value of sincerity and truth in our heart? I'm going to close with a passage from Hebrews chapter 10, 22 to 25. So let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who's promised, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the man- manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. I hope this blessed you today. Thank you for joining us. God bless you. Mm-hmm.